You are now listening to the December 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character and His nature, by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to another program in our Attributes of God series. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Today we are going to be studying sanctification from God. According to Vine's Biblical Dictionary, sanctification means to set apart for God, or especially in the New Testament, it's the separation of the believer from evil things and evil ways. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is kadash. It is a root word in a group of words which occur frequently throughout Scripture, and they are holy, hallow, hallowed, holiness, consecrate, saint, sanctify, and sanctification. These words are all translations of the same root word. In other words, to sanctify means to make holy, that is, to separate from the world and consecrate to God. Let us take a look at Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. God is speaking to Moses and Aaron and had just finished instructing them about remembering the Passover. The Lord says to Moses, Sanctify to me every firstborn the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. So God is telling Moses to set apart, to make holy, the firstborn of both man and beast. Man sets these things apart from everything else. God makes them holy. Now let's go into the New Testament. In John chapter 17, Jesus had been speaking to his disciples and then begins a prayer to God the Father. In verses 14 through 21, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. As we are justified by the Holy Spirit, which is something only He can do, we become sanctified, set apart from the world, as the Holy Spirit does a work in us to mold us and shape us into becoming more like Christ. We cannot do this for ourselves. This is the work of God in our lives. It is an incommunicable attribute of His. 
In closing our program for today, I'd like to leave you with the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, and God bless you all. Goodbye. Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Well, last week we heard a great conversation on why we love those secrets that we keep, don't we? And also the pleasure that gives us a sense of control, but it's not really a sense of control. We, we learn that it's an illusion of control. And this week, we're going to continue that conversation, and we're really going to dive deep into why we fear exposure from those secrets, and then what truly happens when we ask for help, because most of us are going to be really surprised of what happens when we do that. All of this material that we're talking about today, it comes from a book titled, Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are the authors of this book. And this podcast is simply an in-depth conversation about the book itself to where you can talk about, you can listen, and then apply these principles of trust to your own life. Well, let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. All right, guys, let's move into number nine here to where we reject the law that actually protects us. What, what law is this, Ed? Well, this would be the law of sin and death. I mean, Ad, God gave Adam and Eve, uh, you know, uh, here's, I want to help you. All I'm trying to do here, Adam and Eve, mm. is put you in a position to succeed. Right. All right. But I also want you to know you're made in the image of God, and that means you have a choice. So I'm going to give you 10 zillion trees with only one tree on this whole garden that you can't eat the fruit of. Well, guess where they were? <laughs> yeah. Okay, and uh, guess where the enemy was? Right there, too. And so what happens is Adam and Eve rejected the very law, the very idea that was there to protect them. And the key with this, we have to understand, is, and it's very, I, you know, it's just our flesh nature, but I want you to catch a principle here. Until the pain exceeds the fear, there will be no change. So they're going to stay that way, just like anybody else, all these people with all these issues, they'll stay that way until finally the pain exceeds the fear of changing. The pain in them exceeds the fear of changing. And then they'll start to change. That's the reality for most people. What is it? Uh, About 5% of people will change through obedience. 5% 
through um, life circumstances, <laughs> uh, 15% through revelation, but most people won't change until it gets so bad that they change on their own. I, I got to start crying uncle, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I mean, I mean that's, that's the way, I mean, that's absolutely right. The, mm-hmm. the pain level has to rise so high to where my fear has to come below that. Is that right. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. And that's, that's the crisis. That's the point at which crisis comes until you finally decide that you aren't, you know, you aren't going to be alone anymore. You got to reach out and trust in, uh, you know, reach in the, out of the darkness, that old song <laughs> says, and, and trust in someone, trust in the right situation. It means you change directions. You're going to change courses. You're going to start and do, you know, you're going you're to stop doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, mm-hmm. the, that old saying, that old quote says. And that is so true. Until the pain exceeds the fear, uh, there will be no change. Whatever, and here's another truth, whatever you can tolerate, you can't change. See, Amanda tolerated that for a long time, but finally she got to the point where the pain exceeded the fear, she couldn't tolerate it any, any longer. Most people in today's world want to live their lives like this, no pain, no pain. Well, the funny thing about <laughs> Amanda in, that, in the story of course you're referring to princess amanda and the dragon and the dragon was breathing fire in her within her cave that she lived in and and the dragon was breathing fire and her life was being threatened but still she was tolerating it and until caretaker showed up she would have just kept going until she was completely overpowered by that dragon, until she finally called out for caretaker when the dragon was so powerful that there was no way she could control it, and it was ready to kill her and to wipe out her very life. And, And isn't that what we do? We get so enslaved to those habits, even though... They're destructive, uh, and we find them just even in communication patterns with each other that I say this, and then you'll say that, and then I'll say this, and then you'll say that, and then we'll bring up your mother, and then you'll bring <laughs> up the money, and then I'll bring up the car, and then you'll bring up my how much I spend on clothes. And, you know, it's going to go from here to here to here because we have a script, and it's very familiar, and even though we know that it's destructive, we feel stuck in it, and it's really hard to break out of that habit of destructive communication with each other. Yeah. What I find interesting, and I don't really have an answer to it, I mean, some people who are hooked on drugs or pornography or any addiction, which is really just the flesh having its fling, and instead of Christ being in control, something else is in control. But there are people that get confronted and even an intervention, and they still don't change, even though it destroys their life, their marriage, their work. And for many people, they're functional alcoholics. In other words, they can have the drinks and still function in their work and think they're okay. Mm -hmm. And yet, relationally, they're bankrupt, or they can't work with people at work. Um, and I don't know what the, what the lever is, what the switch is. For some people, they can be confronted with their lies and they repent. You know, it's his kindness that leads us 
to repentance. And so on one hand, we, uh, we learn from Scripture, we need to give people grace and love them enough in the midst of their sin to reject the sin and not the sinner. And that's easy to say, but when it's somebody you love, like a daughter or a son or uh, a wife or a husband who is, who is about to run into a brick wall at 100 miles an hour and they don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's only when they actually call for help that everything changes. Isn't that right? And that's the uh, the 10th principle right. that you've got here. I, I think an, another piece of that fear is the fear of exposure. Everybody's going to know, and I will be so embarrassed mm-hmm. if they find yeah. out. If you ask for help. Mm-hmm. 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 And yet the very thing that we, uh, I have a counselor friend who basically says, you know, I can deal with Uh, most people do not want to do the thing they fear the most. So as soon as I ask them, what do you fear the most? And they give it to me. Then I just say, you need to do that. You need to face your worst fear and nightmare. It was sort of like the rich young ruler. He did all the law. He did everything. And what did Jesus say? Sell all you have. But that was his God. And for him, that was too much. And for some people... The thing they're most fearful of, the embarrassment, the shame, if you find out this about me, you won't accept me. Uh, That's the other thing I think our society is obsessed with acceptance of me. And we are such a me society that, um, and the gospel is all about dying to yourself and your self-life and dealing with your flesh and dealing with these hidden dragon eggs uh, and learning to let go of you so that he can fill you with the truth. With, you know, you're going to be so much more happy if you really trust in the Lord instead of trusting in you. And that, that's a great moment when all of a sudden you're so desperate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it just, you know, when you, I'm looking at a quote here. Uh, it says, sometimes when you think you're in a dark place and you think you're buried, actually, you've just been planted. <laughs> and actually, that's true. It's no pain, no gain in the spiritual realm. You know, mm-hmm. you got to die in order to live. you got to give up in order to go up. You know, mm-hmm. you you got to descend in order to ascend. And so there's this whole thing about God where, you know, when you find you're at the end of your rope, you'll find God lives there and God's living there. And, but it's a process. It took a process to get that person there, and it's going to take a process to get them back up again, you know. But that's what the great thing is. That's when everything's changed. When you make a turn, make that turn, you know. I think there was that deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. They call that the turn. <laughs> that's where you're actually doing that. You're denying yourself. You're picking up the cross, and you're following, begin to follow Jesus. And he'll just leave you upward and inward so you can go outward. I don't know, or something. I could play with that forever. But <laughs> that is really a, a true statement. When somebody doesn't care about what their circumstances are doing, in other words, their joy comes from the Lord and their identity in the Lord rather than what they do, what they say, what they feel. That's when maturity is in full bloom. Well, and so that leads to the 10th lesson from the dragon eggs. When we call out to God for help, he's right there. 
And that's what happened in the story. Princess Amanda calls out for caretaker. Boom. He's there. He shows up and he is there to help her. And it made me think of um, that movie with Leo DiCaprio where he, what was it, Catch Me If You Can, where he's pretending to be (laughs) all of these different people (laughs) and Tom Hanks is the FBI agent who's been hot on his trail. And when he finally catches up with him, um, Frank is the name of the character, he's so ready to give up. He wants to be caught by that time. And... I think that happens to us too. We get desperate to get out of the place of our pain and get restored. We want to be restored ultimately. We want to be uh, lifted up and carried in the Lord's arms, but sometimes we just <laughs> we're fighting it tooth and nail for so long. Well, it's like an animal that is uh, hurt and somebody tries to help it and it's clawing and, and, and sneering and until it realizes, oh, they're trying to help me. They're doing everything they can to go against it. And, and one of the things I think we've learned in our modern society is there is some brain chemistry here. It, it's not, when somebody is irrational, sometimes it's because they are irrational and the drugs, the alcohol, the brain chemistry has gone so far off the roadmap, they will not accept the help. And so sometimes you do have to love somebody enough to get through the porcupine quills, to get through the snarling and the, and the scratching and the biting to get to the point where they're willing to be helped. You know, I say to people, real love is doing what you need, not what you want. So how, how do we slay this dragon then? How, once we reach out for help, what do we do next? Well, in the story, I think it's a profound example. You know, the caretaker comes up and says, uh, Amanda, I'm giving you my weapon, my hatchet, my sword. If I could say it that way, it's actually the hatchet. And he says, and he says to Amanda, now you've got my weapon, but you slay it because if I slay it for you, you're going to hate me. You're going to hate me for it because I killed your thing. Mm-hmm. Only you can, you know, slay wow, the that's dragon so that's, that you've empowered, that you've done it, or else you're going you're gonna to get mad at God. Many times in singles ministry, I saw that. You know, if you try and come in and rescue the person, they just get mad at you. Mm-hmm. You try and, uh, you know, to try and get them out of a bad situation, and they'd only end up hating you for it. So there's a profound reality with that. When you get when you come to the end, you gotta. <laughs> how do you say it? Come to the end. I, I've got another quote here. It sees. This is God speaking. He says, "See those mountains you're carrying. You're supposed to climb them." Mm. <laughs> and that's when that's when you've actually got to that point where she picked up the hatchet and <laughs> she threw it with all. You know, it was. I love it. It was God and her working together. It was God's power, but her aim, and kaboom, they got got. Well, and that's the thing about taking responsibility, that it's important for each person to take responsibility for their life. It's God's power that's going to take them beyond their pain, but they have to be willing to take responsibility for the hate, for the unforgiveness, for the bitterness, for whatever it is that they're holding on to so tightly for years sometimes. Uh, but if they will take the responsibility, you know, um, then God will come in like uh, just a flood. 
I had a roommate once who came to me with a bag, a grocery bag full of cookies and candy, all kinds of sweet stuff. And she said, please take this and hide it from me. And I said, why? I, I don't get it. And she was, she was struggling with bulimia. And she said, if you don't hide this from me, I'll eat the whole thing and then I'll go and make myself throw up. And I said, well, can't you just eat one or two? That's, that's what I do. And she said, no. Shows that's, you how much that's you the, knew about bulimia, right? <laughs> that's the whole point is that she, she couldn't control herself. And once she started eating the first Oreo, she had to eat the whole package. And but what's funny is that her action was to give the bag of cookies to me. That's not the answer. I could certainly take that bag of cookies and hide them from her, but what was to keep her from going out and buying more cookies? Until she got control of that herself, there was nothing I could do if it to actually help her. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. Yeah. And that's just the whole idea there, until that pain exceeds the fear. And boom. And so your your lady there, I, I like what she did because she's getting close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's getting, well, so it, it's it, fun. You know, she, to, I mean, not fun. That's a terrible thing to say. But it's it's part of the process. Right. It's she important. was aware. She was aware that she had a problem. She yeah. was taking some action, but she needed to slay that dragon herself. And obviously, she had been wrestling with it for some time. But really what she needed to do and I and I'm sure that it's ultimately the action that she took was to get down on her knees and ask the Lord to give her the strength that she needed to gain control over this so these are such wise words for all of us type a personalities who want to try to help and fix people you know uh, I pray that we're listening well here and then the last lesson here for the the dragon eggs is we're not going to escape any of this unscathed are we mm. we're going to come out with some scars and some bruises and some blood is that's that right actually totally true that's you know I'm seeing here failure is a bruise not a tattoo no grit no pearl I mean there there's going to be you know it, you're going to have some scars and that's just life has scars and uh but it, but it's a that's a reminder of you know the fact of where you used to be there's a little saying here wrinkles mean you laughed gray hair means you cared and scars mean you lived and, and what does no hair mean <laughs> uh, it means that you're not losing hair you're gaining face <laughs> <laughs> my face is so big now you know, and I mean, you've got a great face <laughs> great face all right so dustin and i are in in business here yeah <laughs> i remember in gymnastics i mean if i wanted to get a certain trick we used to call it um so on the parallel bars if i would do this certain move i knew when i didn't do it my shins would slam on the parallel bars i hated that i just couldn't stand it and so you know the the coach would say well do it and i'll catch your legs so you don't hit the bar i said that's a good idea and so he would do it, and I would do this trick over and over and over and over. And then finally I'd say, okay, I'm going to let you do it on your own. And then finally, I mean, after time and time and time and time and time again, and finally I would do it. And I went, oh, I did it. 
And that's what I find with people in counseling, that I may have said the same thing 20 different times. And like they'll say to me, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? And I'll go, I, I've been telling you that for three months. And I've just been trying to do it in different ways. And today, you decided to grab onto it. See, victory is always gained by the loss of the forbidden thing. And that's, that's how you get victory, is the loss of the forbidden thing. Mm-hmm. When she slayed that dragon, she, she stopped growing as a person. She stopped. The moment she embraced that little dragon, she stopped growing as a person. And mm-hmm. she didn't start growing till after she lost that dragon, you see. And that's it's victory. That's victory. It's always gained by the loss of the forbidden thing. So, and how do you grow? I'll, I'll tell you, you know, to me, he who has the son has life. I mean, zoe, bios is in us. We naturally grow. Now, what stops us from growing? Things that hinder growth. So you don't have to try and grow. What you need to do is remove the forbidden thing, move that drag's eggs that's stopping you from growing. Right. We get rid of the, you don't, you don't have to, you weren't delivered from, you were delivered to. We went through that last mm-hmm. time, your purpose, mm-hmm. call, vision, and destiny. So remember the, that whole idea is to get rid of the, uh, that thing, how do you say it? Well, let me just read this. Amanda quit growing the second she enabled the dragon. She began to lose some great God-given things. The problem with people is that they're doing nothing to solve the problem. The basic problem is doing nothing about the basic problem. So this is an encouragement from us to, um, you know, start growing again. Enter, don't be P-O-O-R, passing over opportunities repeatedly. Okay, I want you to be rich. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Radiant, inspired, competent, healthy. And we want you to be rich. And so sometimes you have to do what you hate in order to get something you love. And that's where she ended up. And that's what she started growing again the second she got rid of that drag. Yeah. Well, our scars are reminders for us of experiences that we've gone through. And maybe we've learned from them. And, and maybe we haven't. We haven't. Hopefully, we have learned. And when we see the scar I have it's just a tiny little scar on my wrist that I got when I was just a little girl and picked up a cat that didn't want to be picked up and that cat just scratched me on my on my wrist and it didn't leave it wasn't a huge mark but I still have this little tiny mark on my wrist from when I was maybe five or six years old but I know now I remember my whole life, don't grab a cat that doesn't want to be picked up because you, you can get scratched. And, and that scar, it's a small scar, it's a small illustration, but we carry scars with us to our death. But here's the thing, at the end of our lives, those lessons will have perfected us. They'll all be part of that perfecting process that we are carrying with us into the next life. This is not all there is. These are all um, perfecting, part of that perfecting process that God is using to make us more Christ-like. There's a saying that says, when you take responsibility for someone, you take responsibility from someone. And that comes back to that whole idea of the hatchet again. You know, mm-hmm. God didn't do it, you know, because if he would have taken responsibility for that person, 
he would have taken it from them. So there's just that whole idea. I'm going to just kind of come back to that idea just a little bit that only you can slay your dragon and so forth. Because uh, this is the problem with some of the, you know, the caretakers we have our society today. They have people in crisis, but they keep taking responsibility for them. And when they take that responsibility for them, they take it from them. And essentially, they're taking their power and leaving them powerless. So they're actually end up even even worse, you know. So remember mm -hmm. that, and I would just encourage somebody that's going through that trial out there or understand, boy, I got a drag zig. Um, you know, we'd love to, we will help you, we will counsel you, we will, the book will love on you, but basically we want you to, um, uh, to do it. Because in a sense, this is kind of a true and an untrue statement at the same time. The only thing bigger than God is your will. Not because it is, but because he made it that way. Because that's how much God appreciates that right to choose. And of course, choices reveal you, but your decisions make you. Have you noticed that in your own life? That when someone else takes responsibility for someone, they take responsibility from them. I mean, the, the human will is amazing, isn't it? How far we will allow ourselves to go in, in one area or another to get what we think that we want. And no matter how much we want to help someone stop some form of destructive or sinful behavior, it's only Almighty God who can change a person's heart. Well, next week on Walking Our Talk, we're going to discuss the importance of identity. We're going to talk about who we are, who we truly are, and whose we are, even when we don't feel like it. But until that time, you can learn more about Dr. Ed Delph. You can visit nationstrategy.com. You can also visit Alan and Polly Heller. Head over to walkandtalk.org. And it's there that you can order the book, and it's titled Learning How to Trust. It comes with a newly revised application guide. And this guide is just that. It's great at guiding you into a conversation with your family, your church, or your small group on these issues that deal with trust. And from that application guide with your family, your church, your small group, and you've got questions for Alan, let me suggest you jump on the website at walkandtalk.org and sign up today for one of Alan's trust webinars. Not only will you get more in-depth teaching and training, but Alan will also answer your own personal questions. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. The whole
Stay. 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the Magi, based on Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. And uh, I don't think that Ebenezer Scrooge is the only person who's gotten a visit from the ghost of Christmas past, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, when Christmas comes, aren't you reminded of all kinds of things that have happened in the past to you, maybe around this season? And usually, those memories, at least for me, center on the home and the family, major events that have happened. And um, some of those events are good, and some of those events are bad. Uh, I don't think that I'm the only one that thinks this way, uh, because you'll remember that a lot of our Christmas songs kind of tap into this. Uh, So for instance, you'll remember that famous song by Bing Crosby, where he says, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, Now, after all this grand promise of being home for Christmas, he then says, if only in my dreams, right? Now, why does he say that? Well, it's because he's saying that there is a real sense in which I believe he's transported into the home with all of those warm memories that are associated with it around the time of Christmas. And whether he's able to be there physically or not, that's where his heart goes. Well, I believe that that same kind of thing happens uh, with many of us. Uh, For me, uh, I can't escape this season without being reminded of this rustic old nativity scene that I had in my home growing up. Uh, They had a little blue light in it that gave this really warm blue glow throughout our whole house during the Christmas season. It was the only time the lights in our house were blue, and it used to just give me all kinds of warm thoughts. And uh, as a little kid, I used to go to this nativity scene, and I I would take the, the wise men and the shepherds and some of my action figures, and I would do war with them. I would start to fight with them. Until one day when He-Man decapitated one of the wise men, and uh, my mom got really angry, and so we had like a headless wise man for the rest of our family time when they would pull out that nativity scene. Yeah, so that was last year, but uh, we, we love nativity scenes, and we love the warmth of the home, and, and what's interesting is, here's the deal, I believe actually the reason that Christmas draws our attention towards the home is because it reminds us of the reality that there is a home that all of us deep down inside of us desire, and I think that the wise men give us a picture of the reality that the home that we really desire is not a home that is as close to us as we think. See, when we look to Matthew 2, we are introduced to these wise men. Herod, King Herod, of course, uh, is the king of the Jews, and him and all of Jerusalem are troubled by the arrival of Jesus. But these wise men are so excited about the arrival of the Christ that they travel a thousand miles to go view him in this manger. And what is fascinating is these magi look more like God's people in the response to God's Son than the Jews do. And when Jesus arrives, God's enemies run to worship Jesus while God's people are looking to kill Him. Now our big idea this morning is that Jesus came to lead a people who were further from God than you can imagine to an eternal home with God. You'll notice first in verses 1-2 to that God's enemies came to worship God's Son. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose 
and have come to worship him. Now, Jews uh, were known for being xenophobic. They were fearful of outsiders. Now, they got it honestly. Because if you'll remember in the history of the Jews, uh, they were often in exile and often persecuted. You look through the scriptures even and you'll find that uh, it began with Egypt, where a people who held them in exile out of their land, who held them in captivity, and then later Assyria and then Babylon. And then finally here, whenever these magi come, they find a Jewish people who have been under the rule of a a vicious Roman empire. And so uh, they knew that those who were outside were not usually good for them. They trusted God's Messiah or Christ was going to come, an anointed king who would deliver the Jews and destroy their enemies, those outside forces who were over them. So you can only imagine how these pagan strangers befuddled the Jews, A, with the claim of an interstellar gram announcing the birth of Christ, and B, that they've come to worship him. The word for wise men, it's an interesting word, it's magoi, a word that we get our English words magi and magic from. So when we think of these wise men, they're really magi. And magi was a title that tells us, it tips us off that these individuals that came to see Jesus were actually ethnically and religiously far from God. Now commentators say that these men likely were from either Persia or Babylon. That's likely what most people say, but I'm actually betting on Babylon, modern Iraq, the home of those brutal magi that Daniel faced 500 years before when Nebuchadnezzar drew them in his, the people into exile. Now why would I say that? Matthew 2. If you trace through that text, what you'll find is that he quotes at least four prophets as he goes through. Uh, You'll notice that he quotes uh, Micah 5, Hosea 11, Jeremiah 31, and even a text from Numbers that we're going to talk about today. And each of those texts come within the context of God's people being in exile, being in captivity, and a promise that comes with it that one day God himself will come and lead his people out of exile. So here, don't you think it would be just like God to orchestrate Babylonians who sent Judah into exile running to bow first before King Jesus? See, exile, all that means is that you are evicted from your home country and that you're not allowed back in. And these magi, they aren't really Chinese kings from the Orient, right? They're alien wizards and witches. So catch this. When Jesus shows up, Jewish leaders sit on it. Herod and all of Jerusalem, they don't go running to look for Jesus, but here we find Harry Potter and Gandalf come running to worship. But what is this Jesus star that they see in the sky that directs them to Christ? Uh, It's been identified in a lot of different ways. Uh, Kepler said that it was a supernova. Others, Halley's Comet. But it seems to be supernatural. A supernatural kind of sign that is unique and special. Very similar, I think, to the cloud of fire that led Israel by night through the wilderness. But notice here that it emerges in verse 9 again. And it doesn't just shoot up and sign that Jesus has come or the Christ has come to Jerusalem, but it actually hovers and leads them in to the manger where Jesus is. Now, I believe that Matthew here actually seems to see this star as a fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24-17, where it says, "...a star shall come out of Jacob..." And a scepter shall rise up out of Israel. 
See, Matthew, I don't think that he's encouraging us to check our horoscopes or condoning astrology. I don't think that's what he's saying with this star here. What I think he's doing is he's actually shocking the Jews and us at the long-awaited Christ, saying that he is actually good news for the nations. And not just the nations, for the enemies of the people of God through this Christ. See, Jesus came in to bring grace to strangers and to the enemies of God. Now just catch this. God's heart for the nations didn't begin or end with the incarnation. God's heart for the nations, it did not begin or end with the incarnation. Hebrews 13, 2 actually connects for us. Abraham is one of the, the forefathers of our faith and his love for strangers with our call as Christians today to love strangers. We find this in Hebrews 13 too, where we're reminded of Abraham and Sarah's hospitality to strangers who turned out to be angels. Now that's really strange, right? I mean, you think somebody different's coming over and then, oh, by the way, we are actually spiritual beings who live with God. And here's what he says. says, here's the incentive for Christians to be hospitable. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this word for hospitality, it actually comes from a combination of two words, philo, which is kind of love, and then zanos is a kind of a word for stranger, and so you've got love of stranger, that's where hospitality comes from. And so here we see the hospitality is literally showing love to outsiders, to strangers. Now Leviticus shows that God also had a heart for the stranger. The law is full of ways that God says, this is how you love a stranger who comes over, how you're to treat them. Now, Christian, let me just encourage you to ask you this morning a question just to think about your love for strangers. Do you know that you look so much like God when you invite people into your home and you show concern for them? When you show that you care about their lives, you care about where they stand with God, you care about physically how they're doing, how emotionally they're doing, and you're seeking to draw them towards Christ, did you know that when you do that, you look like God? Even in his cradle. Jesus' enemies, God's enemies, were invited into his home. In fact, because all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we know that we are all guilty before God, and we know everyone ultimately is a homeless outsider left to themselves, right? So let me just encourage you. Open up your home to other members of church. Open up your home to neighbors. Open up your home to those who do not know Jesus Christ, who are not Christians, Open up your home to them and reflect the love of God. Invite stranger people over. Now you might be thinking to yourself, like, what does that look like? Well, I will never forget whenever I was really, I think I was maybe seven years old, and we were invited over to this house, and I thought we were getting lost in the woods. It was like a gravel road in, you know, the deep south, and there were no more signs for roads. Uh, We didn't have, like, GPS on our phones, and so it was getting really creepy, and we were like, maybe this is where people go to die, like scary deaths. And so we finally sort of navigate and find this house, and we go in, and we're sitting there, and we're with the kids, and then all of a sudden I heard my mom kind of squeal a little bit and we run in and come to find out they had been cooking for us and they had made like this huge bucket of squirrel. Now this is awesome. I had never had squirrel before. Uh, Little did I know that some people who when they make squirrel for you don't chop off the heads and my mom didn't know that either. And so when she looked down in the bucket she saw these eyes poke up and look back at her and she thought it was still alive and it really scared her. 
And so for me, that was like weird and different, right? But you know what really sticks with me like here, like as I'm 30 years later thinking about that event? What a gracious thing that this family had us over and cooked for us. Now, yeah, maybe we need to be considerate and think about others and whether or not they're scared of like squirrel heads and stuff. But the fact that they loved us enough to invite us into their homes and share life with us, like I'll never forget that drive into the woods for those people that loved us like that. You know, we need to be a people who are willing to open up our homes to other and love them sacrificially. See, people who are not Christians, you need to be inviting them over to your home. People who are, are of a different race, people who are younger or older, richer or poor, more or less educated, Democrats or Republicans. And we need to care for and about them. That's what God has called us to do as the God who loves strangers. And here's the deal. <laughs> Hebrews tells us, who knows, if you do this, an angel just might show up. So invite people over to your home. See, hospitality, it isn't just for mature Christians. We're never too immature to start inviting people over. And as we invite people over, it would always make us more mature in Christ. I just, I love the way that you love others and are so gracious to others that come into our body. That is a special gift. I'm so thankful for you in that. Uh, I've told you before, I I recently had a lady in our office, we were doing um, an interview and she said, like, I don't know, do you like pay your members to be friendly to outsiders? Because everybody's so friendly. It's like, some, they must be getting something else out of it, right? And uh, the funny thing is, I hear that kind of thing all the time about you. But let me just say this, we always have room to grow, as much as I'm encouraged, and we always want to make sure that we continue to grow in this, especially as our body grows. So let's continue to grow in our display of the love of Christ for one another and the outsider. Let me give you a few quick ways that you can do that. Uh, one is, pray regularly. Pray regularly that God will give you opportunities to share Christ and that you will faithfully respond. You know, I I love whenever God just gives me like one of those idiot opportunities to share the gospel where it's so obvious that the person needs to hear about Christ that I feel like I would have to honestly be like rejecting Jesus and his immediate call to share Christ with them for me not to speak of Christ. Have you ever had those expectations where you're like, I don't want to do it, but like it would be sinful not to, right? Pray that God would bring those kind of opportunities to you where he corners you and forces you to love somebody towards Jesus. Uh, Also, show up early to services. Look for folks who you don't know. Now, maybe they've been here for a while and it's a great opportunity for you to get to know them. Or maybe it's a visitor who has come looking for answers about who God is and you get the special privilege of sharing Christ with them, of answering the questions that they have, of entering into a relationship where you get to disciple them towards Christ. Third, if they ask for prayer, these people that that you see in the congregation, don't just say, I'll pray for you and send them on their way. Pray for them there in the moment. You know, I know sometimes you got busy stuff that'll call you away, but what a great opportunity to say, you know what, let me just go ahead and pray for you right now. I want to pray for you. Fourth, Invite your friends to church. Don't assume when they come that they know what's good for them spiritually. Be ready to train them, teach them through what it looks like to listen to the Word of God preached, to pray, explain why we do what we do. Be ready to have answers to questions for people that are not used to the gospel. And ask them questions and explain why we do what we do. But fifth, trust that the Holy Spirit is better than a star. In other words, when you're going, maybe you don't feel equipped to share Christ with others who are here, who are visiting. Maybe it makes you nervous and you're thinking, I don't know if I I really can do this right. Uh, Let me just tell you one of the best ways to do it is just do it. Like go up to them, love them in Christ and trust if you're praying, if you're in the word, if you see this person, that the Holy Spirit has already gone before you. He already goes before you leading people towards his son. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the victor when anybody comes to Christ and just be an instrument that you allow God to use in their lives. Uh, But let's continue to be 
a church who loves strangers because he prepares the way and helps us to love strangers when we feel unprepared. But don't miss this. The strangers here need more than nature to find God. They needed God's word. So second, notice the Magi need more than nature to find Jesus in verses 3 to 8. Now look there with me again in Matthew 3 to 8, or 2, 3 to 8, and look what, what happens. There it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, we don't have a, a long time to tarry here. And we looked at this last week, but notice uniquely here that the scripture doesn't tell us how the Magi knew how to interpret this star. In other words, we don't know what kind of constellation tipped them off. We don't know who told them that this constellation was going to lead to king coming from the Jews. But what we do know is something very natural in and of itself. A star led these Magi to Jerusalem. Now the Bible says that God's creation speaks to us revealing the character of God. Uh, so most of you have remembered uh, probably Psalm 19:1 that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So in other words that is a, a picture to us of a general revelation of God's his character and his attributes through the creation that we see. And so here we find that there is a, a real sense in which creation can speak to us about the nature of who God is and who we are and how we're to understand those things. Uh, that's why uh, when you go outside on a chilly night in Phoenix and you look up at the stars of heaven and you, I think, have to be a really clever debater to argue in yourself into thinking that that's an accident. The space and the stars and the planets as they move and rotate and revolve, that that just kind of happened. I mean, planets spin and revolve around the sun, which is one of the billion stars that dot the ceiling of our night. And we found that the closer technology enables us to look at the creation that we live in, the more stupefying the grandeur of the seemingly ever-expanding and maybe even infinite heaven seems. And yet the heavens declare God's power, His intelligence, and beauty. But did you notice that this extraordinary act of nature got the Magi to Jerusalem, but it couldn't bring them to the Savior? They needed God's people, Israel, to point them to God's special revelation, His Word, the Bible, to get them to Christ. And they quote Micah 5.2, The priests and the scribes direct these Magi to Bethlehem where Jesus was to, born, to be born. Now catch this. Nature tells us enough to make us responsible for disobeying God. But it doesn't tell us enough to save us. Romans 1.18-20 to tells us this very thing. God has clearly revealed His invisible attributes through creation. But we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness and are without excuse. There's no excuse for our not worshiping God as God. But catch what this means. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are desperately in need of God's word of grace to go to Jesus for the salvation that we all need. So natural death, that's one message as people die that there is something wrong between us and God. 
That's why Romans 10 says that we need good news in the context of that bad news. And there we're told beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why is the good news beautiful? Well, it's because the Magi who were far from God needed God's word to find Jesus and Jesus to find God. So the good news is that when we put our faith in Christ, we simultaneously become homeless exiles because this world is not our home and exiles with a home. Do you see that? Like all of a sudden what the gospel means is, is that we recognize that this is not our home. We are homeless exiles and sojourners, as Peter says, but that we are exiles who have a better home that is coming. I don't miss this. Home isn't where your Christmas tree is, but home is not ultimately where your Christmas tree is. Home is where Christ himself is with the Father. That's our home. And if we don't really come to grips with that reality, then our lives are going to be difficult and dark because that Christmas tree is not going to provide the kind of joy that we were made for. It is not going to provide the kind of lasting, eternal home that we look for. See, our great hope is in a person and not a place at this point in redemptive history. Now, sometimes people ask a question here. I think it's important to stop and ask in a lot of different ways. Okay, I know that you've got to hear the good news to believe in God and define salvation. But if God, if this is true, how can God really be fair? I mean, if faith only comes through responding to the good news, being preached by faith, then what do we do with that poor, innocent guy in the the backwoods of Malaysia who has never heard the gospel? Like, is it fair that he would be judged if if he has never heard the gospel? I mean, is God going to judge him? Will he face the judgment of God if he hasn't heard the gospel? And my answer would be, of course not. Of course God's not going to judge like this innocent guy in Malaysia that's never heard the gospel. But here's the problem according to the Bible. There is no innocent guy in the backwoods of Malaysia. The gospel tells us that we have all been born as sinners against God. Aliens, rebels. We need God's salvation. Every one of us. None of us are innocent apart from God. Everyone is without excuse. So we've all suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and are altogether guilty. And we all need to be saved. But this reality is what ought to drive us to take the gospel to the nations. Now I know it's so easy to become so consumed with the problems of our lives. And they are legion. But the reality is, even amidst the darkness of our lives, we're called to reach out into the darkness of the nations where people have not heard the gospel yet. That's why we as a church give 10% of our giving. Every dollar that you give goes to missions and oftentimes a lot more. That is not because we don't believe that we could find really good ways to spend 10% of our money. It's because we are convicted that the nations need to hear the gospel. And we get excited about seeing the gospel go in so many different ways out to the nation. Here's what's so amazing about God. When we do missions, we look like God who has a mission, his own mission to save others. See, he didn't save, send his son to save the innocent insiders. He sent his son to save guilty outsiders who were unworthy of receiving that gospel. And he brings them to his son, Jesus, so that they can worship someone so much better than those false gods that rob them of everything and give nothing back. See, Jesus came so that we could go. And when we do that, we look like our God. So friends, there's nothing more precious than the knowledge of God. Nothing more precious than the good news of what Christ has done to redeem sinners like you and me. In general revelation, it lets you know that God is powerful, but special revelation invites you to know the God who is love, who has come to save sinners. And worship is the goal. And we find worship third, where the Magi worship Jesus. In verses 9 to 12, we find that 
these magi, their response to Jesus is one of worship. Look there with me again, Matthew 2, verses 9 to 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod sends the Magi out, telling them to send word back. And here what we find is that the star actually then reappears and guides them, hovers over Jesus. And when they saw it in verse 10, it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The only real right response to Christ. It's to rejoice in him. And as soon as they found Jesus with his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. Now Jesus, he could have actually been like two years old at this point. And the shepherds were long gone. So if you're setting up your nativity scene and you want it to be really authentic, maybe you should just take the magi and stick them in the garage, right? Because they would have been like way behind the shepherds. But here, clearly, what we find is, is that they came to worship Jesus. But what's not clear is, are they worshiping him as God or as a great king? Clearly, here it simply saw Jesus as a rival king, and maybe the Magi do as well. But I like what Don Carson says here. He says this, if, if the Magi merely worshiped him as royalty and not deity, they worshiped better than they knew. And either way, we know here that Matthew never refers to Herod as king again, and once the true King Jesus arrives, he is the king. Now, you might be asking, how many magi were there? Well, we know that a lot of people have said different things, right? So Chrysostom said there were 12. Uh, I find, like, as I read a lot of older commentaries, that they say that the Catholic Church in the medieval period was saying that there were three because there were three gifts. I mean, that's good logic, right? So we don't really know, but we do know they had three gifts, and they were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't think that these gifts were necessarily meant to symbolize anything. Frankincense uh, was this substance that was basically like a a glittering, odorous kind of gum. And and then myrrh was a spice and a perfume that they got from Arabian trees and it was used for embalming. So these were precious, valuable things. Now we do know that it's likely that those precious objects that were given to Jesus for worship were actually used to fund the trip that they took to Egypt when they were running from King Herod, exile to get away from their country. But here, what we find is that Herod actually looks more like, the king of the Jews actually looks more like the Pharaoh who killed the children of Bethlehem as a small likeness to the Pharaoh that killed all the firstborn of Israel. What an irony. Of course, the Pharaoh was fearful of the many, while Herod was fearful of the one, King Jesus. And those far off here are worshiping King Jesus. Now catch this. This is the goal of missions. We want, as John Piper says, to see worshipers made where worshipers were not. We long to see people worship God as God. That's good for God, but it's also good for us. It's the best for us as we worship God as we were created to be. See, God created us for upward relationship with himself. And he also created us for outward relationship with others. And when we are reconciled to God, worshiping him increasingly as we ought and he deserves, we're more human for it. But don't miss this. Maybe you're thinking to yourself like, yeah, we need to go out and love strange people here. 
There's people that aren't like us, don't talk like us, don't look like us, don't have the jobs we have, don't hang out in the places we have. But you know what's interesting here? We are the strangers. We're the strangers that were not worshipers of God, but have been made to be worshipers. We need more worshipers of God, and we are part of God's grand plan to do that. Let me just like put a plug in here for this. I was talking with a number of evangelical leaders uh, recently, and they were sharing how they've been studying missiology or missions over the last four decades. And here's what they found. It is great that we are looking to make worshipers where worshipers are not and reaching unreached people groups. Here's the problem that we're finding. When we reach unreached people and we don't plant a local church, we have exclusively found that there is always regression. We lose that people group. But where we have planted a church with a people group that has not been reached, what we have found is not only do we find that there is a living, breathing, continual testimony, we find that they also have a heart to plant other churches where people have not yet been reached. So do you see that? Like we need in our missions to have a desire and a heart to see local churches of worshipers who are committed, who are seeking to hold and affirm the truths of the gospel. If we want to see more folks come to Christ who have not yet heard of him. But where churches are planted amongst the unreached, we see churches growing and progressing, not regressing. But all of us, I believe, will love strangers better when we realize that we are the strangers that God saved. This morning, I think that one of the things that we forget so easily is that we are strange. I think that's kind of the reality that God wants to bring home to us. And we are the ones that need to be brought home. So hear this. We need to be reminded regularly of how strange we are if we are going to love other strangers. And these magi, they run to worship Jesus because Jesus came to rescue them. You struggle to love others share the love of Christ with them? There might be lots of reasons why, but could it be because you've seen yourself as a spiritual local who had inherited grace rather than a spiritual alien who's been rescued by grace? See, the Magi's home was wherever Christ was. The gospel makes us homeless exiles and exiles with a home all at once. A stranger who has been loved knows how to love strangers. Jesus came to bring exiles home. Notice fourth that Jesus became an exile to lead the greater exodus. So in verse 12, a dream warns the Magi. And so they, they don't go back to Herod. They, they just they get out of town, sort of in the dark of night. They disappear. And then in verses 13 to 15, a dream warns Joseph to run to Egypt. Now Matthew explains Jesus going to Egypt, saying in verses 13 to 15, that it fulfills Hosea 11.1, 1, where we find Hosea saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. There, in context, in Hosea, Hosea is reminding the people of Israel how God delivered them out of Egypt during the Exodus. And then he promises that a greater future Exodus where God will come like a great lion and lead his people out of exile and return them to their homes. So there's a promise of deliverance, a greater future deliverance that is coming for the people of God in Hosea. But here's what's interesting. Hosea 11.1 speaks of Israel is God's son. But Matthew says, Jesus, the individual, is now God's son fulfilling this. Now, some commentators, when they look at this, they say, I think Matthew is just a little bit fancy with the text. He's not using his Bible very well. My 
predisposition towards that? Is it like, that's junk. Like I always think that people that are writing the Bible inspired by the spirit have a better view towards understanding scripture than I do. That's just sort of like my knee jerk reaction. So when I look at this, I think Matthew sees Jesus as the new and greater Israel who willingly stepped down from his throne in his home in heaven to take on human flesh, willingly becoming an exile to lead his people out as the great lion of the tribe of Judah. Here is the lion who has come and he has roared and he has put fear in sin, death, and the devil, promising that their demise is sure. So that he is leading them out of a greater exodus than the exodus that Moses led Israel out of in Egypt. A place where they are futureless. A place where they can't count on anything staying or being permanent. To a home that is eternal, forever, and joyful, and with God. Jesus enthroned or entered this world as an outsider to invite insiders to be in the world. Do you see how backwards that sounds? That's exactly what he did for us. In other words, freedom in Christ means becoming exiles in this world. And the gospel invites us to be both kings and exiles. Loved by God, hated by the world. That's pretty upside down. But that's why the Bible says that those who have put their faith in Christ become sojourners and exiles. That doesn't mean we don't have a home. It just means that it's not here yet. We have all got a longing for shalom in the home. I believe that that peace that we desire in home where everything works right and everybody's happy and everybody has peaceful relationships is something that every human desires. That's not just a Christian desire. That's a non-Christian desire. That's a desire of every person on the face of the planet. And it might have different names and different styles. But at its root, we, we want peace at home. And what we find here is the gospel has come and met us in this and explained it. See, we've longed for this shalom in the home, and that's all, that all-encompassing peace and joy. But this hope of a future home is found here in a person and not a place at this point. If you're looking for that peace, that peace is only to be found in Christ until it is to be found in the new heavens and the new earth. So the great irony, I think, in this text is that The political and ethnic Jews in this story think they are insiders at home, and the Magi are the outsiders and visitors. But in reality, the Magi look like they're more at home than even the Jews are with Christ. Like maybe you're just imagining yourself as an insider without having truly come to Christ. In other words, Jesus is the only ark that will save you amidst the flood of God's wrath that's coming. Everything else sinks if it doesn't lead back to a confidence in Christ. Faithfully coming to church, if you're a believer, it it grows your faith. Being born into a Christian family, into a godly home where where Christ is exalted and savored and rejoiced in, is a wonderful blessing. It's a unique blessing you shouldn't be uh, in any way ashamed of. You should be grateful of. Baptism, communion, uh, church membership, all offer a critical encouragement that you are walking faithfully with Jesus. All of these generous means of grace that we have been given by God Himself can sink us if they aren't driven by a heart that knows that none is born on the inside with God. Every one of us needs to put our faith in Christ. I think a lot of people actually church hop because they have a longing for community and friendship and meaningful relationship, which is code for home. Where they are accepted and loved and can build something that will last. And they never quite satisfy that inner longing for belonging. But here's why this matters. See, I believe the difference between Christians and non-Christians, as I said before, is not that one longs for home and one doesn't. 
The difference is that Christians know where that home they long for really is. See, historically, God's people have mostly been in exile. I don't think that there is an accident in that. See, God's people, always, mostly, in exile. Out of the land, always away from God's promised land where God wants to meet with His people. And why is that? Because He wants us to know that there is something better yet to come. We're not home yet. I love what Hebrews 13, 11, 13 to 15 says. This is why God loves exiles. People don't feel like they've gotten home. He says God's people are all ultimately renters. Waiting on our forever home. We're all renters. We're waiting on that forever home. Now he says, speaking of all of the godly people of the past, Abraham, Sarah, and others, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, Right, Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But they didn't. They see there was something more that was coming. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a heavenly Zion. These magi traveled a thousand miles from their earthly home on the first Christmas and were closer to their ultimate home than ever when they were with Jesus in a manger. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, this is the good news of Christmas. Jesus came to lead people who were further from God than you can imagine to an eternal home with God. Do you long for that home? I hope that you do. If you don't, I'd love to tell you about it. Don't leave without talking to me. Let's pray. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.